Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. Last October, I got to talk with one of the best science communicators out there, Catherine Hayhoe. She just released her new book called Saving Us, which is a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a world that often feels helplessly fractured. And despite the dismal outlook when it comes to climate change, Catherine really does believe that people can still come together and do something about it. Catherine is an evangelical Christian. She knows what it's like to inhabit spaces that aren't welcoming to talk about a warming planet. But she has a unique way of generous and receptive listening. I want to play you a part of our conversation from last year where Catherine talks about how she approaches people who are skeptical about science. How I think of it is something called the Six Americas of Global Warming that was developed by Yale University's Climate Communication Center. And what they do is they divide people up into six different groups. And it really makes sense when you start to think about who's in the groups. At one end, you have people who are alarmed. And then right next Mm -hmm. to them, you have people who are concerned. And they make up well over 50% of people in the U.S., But here's the interesting thing. Most people who are alarmed or concerned are not activated. They might be afraid. They might be panicked. And I talk to people in Texas, and many people here are alarmed, but they don't know what to do about it. So you know what? We never talk about it. Only 14% of people, according to the most recent poll, ever talk about climate change. And so we just quietly stew in our anxiety, which is not healthy at all. And we do nothing because we don't know what to do. The next biggest group is cautious. And cautious Uh people, they often lead with their doubts. And frankly, who wouldn't have doubts these days with everything that you can pick up on the internet and social media? How do we know it isn't a volcano? How do we know it isn't a natural cycle? Are, Are there any solutions to climate change that don't involve destroying the economy and everybody going back to the Stone Age? These are questions that anybody would have if they spent any time on media that's, you know, on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. And so when cautious people lead with these questions, all too often they just get a denial label slapped on their forehead. And that just shuts down the conversation instead of saying, those are great questions. They're such good questions that many people have spent a lot of time looking into them. This is how we know it's not volcanoes. We checked. This is how we know it's not natural cycles. We looked at that. This is how we know that moving our electricity grid in the U.S. over to clean energy would actually save us money, including your electricity bill. There's good answers to it. So that's most of the people in the U.S. That is 75% of us right there in that chunk. And then the remaining 25%, we have a small group who are disengaged. They've been living under a rock the last 20 years. I don't know where that rock is, but (laughs) I think you kind of have to be there to not not know about climate change. (laughs) Then there's 12% who are doubtful. And those are the ones that the conversations are most difficult with, but they can make progress if we can genuinely connect over shared values. And in the book, I have some really fun examples of ways that that has happened with people who are doubtful. But then at the end, you have the seven percenters. And honestly, my definition of a seven percenter is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone saying global warming is real and high letters of flame appear before them, that would not change their minds. So who do I think I am? I want to talk about John Cook and his father, because he lived in one of these groups outside of the hardcore 7% deniers. I was surprised, you tell the story about John and his dad in the book, I was surprised what actually reached his father's, I guess, dismissiveness and skepticism. So will you talk about this? I will. That is one of my favorite stories. So John's dad was doubtful. And doubtful means that he was pretty hardcore. I mean, every time John went home for dinner, his dad would be like, well, John, there's more polar bears now than there ever have been. So how can you say that they're endangered? (laughs) Right? But 99.9% of our denial has nothing to do with the science. It has nothing to do with religion. Believe me, I know that most of the excuses we use are either science or religiousy, with a few economic excuses thrown in. But 99.9% of our aversion is solution aversion. We don't think we can fix it. We understand we're part of the problem, but we don't know what could be done to fix it that's consistent with our values. So 
our subconscious kicks in as a defense mechanism because we don't want to be a bad person. We don't want to say, sure, this is real and it disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized, most vulnerable people on the planet, but I don't want to fix it. That would make me a bad person. So we rationalize. We go out and we engage in something called motivated reasoning to simply find the reasons why we're, we're right. We, we, we get our opinion first, as Jonathan Haidt says in, the, in his really interesting book, The Righteous Mind. We form our opinion first, and then we go out looking for information to prove that we're right. So that's what John's dad had done. But his identity was that of a fiscal conservative. He's shrewd with his money. He likes to save money. He likes to be independent. So when a rebate program came up for solar panels in his area, John, you know, mentioned this to his dad and his dad crunched the numbers and he said, sure, this actually makes sense. So he got panels. He started sending John his bill every month to boast about how much money he had saved. (laughs) These solar panels reinforced his pre-existing identity. It made him even more shrewd, even more savvy, even more fiscally conservative and more independent than he was before. And it made him part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And so John recounts how about a year or two later in the course of conversation, his dad said, oh yes, global warming. I've always thought that was real. (laughs) And John said he just about fell off his chair. He's like, he didn't just change his mind. He forgot that he had ever denied it. And then his dad's like, and I had showed you my latest, my latest power bill for my, (laughs) with my solar panels. (laughs) I mean, John's a climate scientist. We should we should add that too. I mean, he well, really knew the science, and yet his own dad couldn't be persuaded by it. It's even worse than that. John went back to university and got a PhD in cognitive psychology <laughs> to understand denial. That he is the leading global expert. He has this amazing YouTube video series called Cranky Uncle, and he talks about COVID denial and vaccine denial and climate denial, and that wasn't what convinced his dad. I think this leads us to talking about fear and complacency and efficacy. This was so interesting to me how you have linked the research about cognitive, uh, the cognitive research on efficacy, this, this sense of agency that we can do something about it and climate change. Come back to why the two are so inextricably linked and why we better understand this better to persuade some of the skeptics and the dismissives out there. Well, this goes right back to the groups we were talking about, the fact that 75% of us are alarmed, concerned, or cautious about climate change. 75%. Yet somehow we're not, action is happening, but it's not happening at the scale or the speed that it needs to, to avoid truly serious and even dangerous consequences, not for the planet, which will still orbit the sun long after we're gone, but for us and for every living thing that shares this planet with us. So if 75% of us are worried and nothing's happening, the question, that begs the massive question, why not? And that has nothing to do, in my opinion, with persuading the the 25%. It has everything to do with the fact that we don't think we can make a difference. And that's that that social science word that you just mentioned, efficacy. Efficacy is the idea that if I do something, Will it matter? Will it make a difference? If we do something, will it matter? And when it comes to climate change, we're told there's this existential threat to civilization as we know it, which is true. And then we're told to change our light bulb and eat less meat. And we we instinctively know that that is not going to fix an existential threat. So although I have certainly changed my light bulbs and eat less meat and have a plug-in car and solar panels and reduce my food waste and change my travel habits... That is not what is going to fix climate change. The single most important thing that I am doing, that you are doing, that every single one of us can do is exactly what we're not doing. We are not talking about why it matters and what we can do to fix it because that is what builds efficacy. And this this is going to sound kind of crazy, but when you look at how the world has changed before in the past, when you look at huge monumental issues like slavery and civil rights and women having the vote... It didn't change because a prime minister or a CEO or a big, famous, rich, wealthy, influential person decided it had to. It began, that change began, the first domino in that long chain was knocked over when people, ordinary people, decided to use their voices to talk about why it mattered, what we can do to fix it, to join together with others, to talk to people where they worked, in their neighborhood, at whatever table they're sitting at, so to speak, which 
could be the kitchen table, but it could be the boardroom table. It could be the school table. It could be your desk at work. Wherever you are, using your voice to talk about why it matters, what other schools are doing, or other businesses are doing, or other cities are doing, or our city is doing, or our state is doing. And getting that ball rolling and talking, of course, about what you're doing yourself. I talk about that too. But building that sense of efficacy, because ultimately that's what's holding us back. And that's what will take us forward. I want to talk about talking about climate in places where there's resistance. You have a lot of experience with this in evangelical faith communities. I'm curious about what it was like when you first started going into churches and perhaps onto, you know, conservative college campuses to talk about the consequences of climate change. At the very beginning, what was it like? Well, it was really interesting because I didn't even start talking to groups that weren't just asking me to come and update them and they were already worried. I didn't start doing that until I moved to Texas. And when I moved to Texas, I was the first climate scientist within probably 200 miles of where I live. And as far as I know, I still am the only one. Within a couple of months, I got my first invitation to speak to a women's group. And they they weren't dismissive. They were curious, cautious, maybe doubtful, but they had questions and they figured out, hey, we've got this person in town now. Let's hear what she has to say. So I, I did my very best to organize the science as clearly as I could. And I went and I talked to the group and I listened very carefully to the questions they asked me. And I still do that today because I figure the questions are things that they wanted me to say or they wanted to hear from me, but they didn't. So the, that first talk, I still remember, I got a lot of questions on, but what about? Because that's what they were hearing, you know, in the news or um, from people they trusted. But what about volcanoes? What about natural cycles? What about? So I got an invitation a few weeks later from a woman who was at that first meeting to speak to her book group. So I changed my presentation, addressed the whatabouts, listened very carefully to the questions I got, um, got an invitation a few weeks later to speak at a senior citizen's home. And each time I kept listening. And so we progressed from what about questions of the science to questions about, well, why should I care? I mean, you're a climate scientist, but I live here in Texas. So then I started to talk about how it's affecting us in Texas. It's not about Antarctica or the polar bears, although they are certainly affected too, but what is happening where we live? Droughts are getting longer and stronger and heavy rainfall is more frequent and it's getting really hot in the summer. And hey, we're even getting crazy winter storms. This is global weirding. But Mm -hmm. Then I started to think, well, hang on, but why do I care? I care because I live in Texas. I care because I'm a mom. I care because, you know, I want clean air to breathe and water to drink and food to eat. But most fundamentally, I care because I'm a Christian. In fact, the reason I became a climate scientist is because I'm a Christian, not despite it. I was almost done my undergraduate degree in astrophysics when I you know, looking back serendipitously and <laughs> needed an extra class to finish my degree. And there was this brand new class in climate science over in the geography department. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? Huh. And that's, huh. that's where I learned, um, yeah, that, that climate change is not only an environmental issue, but it's also a human issue. It affects our health. It affects the economy. It affects national security. And it disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized people, like we talked about before, the very people we as Christians are called to love and care for. And so I thought, well, this is so urgent, because I also learned that in the class. Surely we have to fix it soon. I'll do everything I can to help, and then I'll go back to astrophysics. So so that's why I became a climate scientist. So going back to my my trail of, of talks, finally, after about a year or two, I got my first invitation to speak at a church. And it wasn't First Baptist. In fact, I never have been invited to speak at First Baptist. It was Second Baptist. And it wasn't Sunday morning. It was Wednesday night, you know, so I wasn't going to defile the sanctuary or anything just in case. <laughs> um, but I thought to myself, well, maybe this is the time, as uncomfortable and as it feels, to share with people why I care because they're Christians too, and I'm not a Baptist, but you know, I am a Protestant, and so we believe most of the same things. So that was the first time I started, after the science and after the impacts, I started to sort of share some of the Bible verses that guided my own concern. And I didn't know what I expected. I sort of expected people to sort of maybe roll their eyes or, or walk out, but instead, 
people sort of leaned forward and I could see their faces opening up even more as something that was so important to them was directly connected to this issue. And so that's where I started to realize the power of engaging at that level. And since then, I've spoken at many chapel services with many very nervous people wondering what they were doing bringing this climate scientist in. But I start, I start with almost a statement of faith. Like, this is what I believe, and this is what you believe too. And because we both believe this about this amazing planet, about the incredible nature that we're surrounded with, about how we are to be recognized by our love for our fellow human beings, that is literally Jesus's words. Because this is what we all believe, and we're all nodding along with this, right? That's why we care about climate change. And then I connect Mm -hmm. the dots and show how if we take the Bible seriously, we're the perfect person to care. Catherine Hayhoe, climate scientist, chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. If you want to hear that whole dynamic, energizing conversation about climate change, you can find it on the website or on my podcast. It originally aired in October of 2021. Steph Curtis in the studio. Steph, we have crafted an hour of women in science who have written great books. How about that? I love it. There's a lot of women out there writing about science and great books. And I think this is a demonstration that, geez, I mean, books cover the spectrum of fascinating news and information and delving into really interesting topics. And we're here to remind you that NPR invests in books. Mm-hmm. NPR invests in long, in-depth conversations. And that's what you're getting every Friday at 11. That's what you're getting day in, day out on NPR News. 800-227-2811 to say right now, I care about science. I care about books. I love to hear women who are doing this kind of science. NPRnews.org. And it is Pay It Forward Friday in addition. So your, What does that mean? That means... Your donation today supports this wide-ranging conversation that you're hearing today. Plus, for every donation made today, there will be a gift, will, a, a kid's play kit will be provided by Alight. That's our partner um, on this. Um, they used to be called American Refugee Committee. Oh, now they're yes. called Alight. Yep. Oh, and right. And a child replaced by war, famine, or natural disaster will be provided with a kid's play kit. Because the when you're displaced, it, you're still a child, and you mm-hmm. still want need that time to uh, to play, to to do art, to play a game. And so, your donation today, you make a donation, you support NPR News with Carrie Miller, you support these kind of conversations. Plus, you provide a child with a play kit. How's that for Pay It Forward Friday? I love today. This is awesome. So join today, mprnews.org, or call 1-800-227-2811. I suspect that if you dip in and out of the drive, and I have a a guess that a lot of people, that's how Mm -hmm. they listen, you look for a particular reason, oh, yeah, this is my day, or I love that thank you gift, or I'm ready for the state parks permit. I'm going to submit to you that if you care about reading and you love literature and you love science and you want more conversations about science and you want in-depth and context-rich conversations about science – This is your moment. The moment the hour has arrived. Here it is. (laughs) So I hope you'll make a contribution here on the second day of the Spring Member Drive, mprnews.org, 800-227-2811. Join John in Rochester. Thank you, John, for being a member. John says, I like that the news is unbiased. Wish I could donate more, but I'm retired and on a fixed budget. NPR is great. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you, John. And one way to make your donations go further is to donate today at 1-800-227-2811 or at mprnews.org. And you'll not only be supporting NPR News, you'll be providing a kids play kit for a child who's been displaced by war or famine or a natural disaster. It's our partnership with Alight. How's that for paying it forward and making your money go further? 1-800-227-2811. Hey, the great thing about that, I'm sorry, Steph. <laughs> or mprnews.org, Carrie. <laughs> the great thing about this is that you can come in at the level that really makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. You can come in at $10 a month, and we are as grateful for your $10 a month as we are 
I don't know, you want to be a member of the Carrie Miller Book Club, that's a leadership level, you decide, this is really you leading the way and deciding what makes sense for you, for your involvement and your contribution at Minnesota Public Radio, 800-227-2811. If you're hanging out online right now on this Friday, nprnews.org, I'm going to remind you again, it's all about science. It's about great women researchers writing books also about popular and accessible science. I think that's a reason to step up, and I hope you will. nprnews.org. And remember that for every donation made today, your gift will provide a kid's play kit to a child displaced by war, famine, or natural disasters. This is in partnership with Alight. So thank you for your support and pay it forward. So join right now, 1-800-227-2811 or go to mprnews.org. mprnews.org, 800-227-2811. I'm going to make one more reminder here. I was in a, a state park yesterday, late afternoon, beautiful day. We have a state parks permit, and that mm-hmm. comes to you for $15 a month. So just think about that as we go back to our conversations with research and science and books. Uh, I talked to journalist Florence Williams. She put out a book earlier this year in the wake of a painful divorce, and it explores how physical and emotional pain intersect. We talked about why breakups are painful and how our bodies react to that kind of emotional wallop. And as we often do during these conversations, yet another book came up. And I asked Florence if she was familiar with Olivia Lang's memoir, The Lonely City, which I thought about a lot as I read the book, Heartbreak. She's a young person. She's in a city. She's not someone who we we sort of think of as being a lonely type. But again, it's the heartbreak, you know, and and one of the things she really kind of elucidated for me was that loneliness really represents a gap between what you want and what you have. So you're not going to be lonely if you're perfectly happy (laughs) being single or, you know, working on your, um, your poetry or whatever. It's when you want something you don't have that you develop this sort of keen yearning. That's a very, very, that is a heartbreaking feeling in in and of itself because it's just consumed by loss. Yeah. And it's not about, I want what I can't have. It's like, I had, for her, I had the promise of this. I had, you know, I had an experience of this, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Yes, and instead of being able to kind of look at your future in this planned, expected, secure way, what you're looking at, and she describes it like this, you're looking into a void. And that's terrifying. Right. Uh, She wrote something interesting in an op-ed as we all went into COVID isolation, that I, that I think applies to our conversation. She says, loneliness is a taboo state in our social world, and part of its extraordinary pain has to do with shame. There's an abiding feeling that it's a punishment for social failure, an inability to be sufficiently popular or liked. I never really thought about the shame of this. What, what occurs to you about that? Absolutely. People don't generally talk about their loneliness in the way that we often don't talk about a lot of really negative, difficult emotions. Uh, it's, It's actually one of the motivations I had for writing my book. I feel like when we can share these emotions, the burden gets lightened, you know, for us. And also there's this sense of, well, maybe we can all learn something, you know, from my terrible experience. Uh, and, and that can help <laughs> help provide a sense of, of mission in a way that can be very comforting and healing. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really think there's much to be gained from keeping secrets about our emotional states. It's, it's something that, you know, many of us are taught to do. You know, we're not comfortable with this. But, but I, I do think it's actually really, really important, not just for our own healing, but for sort of a cultural healing that we need to experience as well. This is why... It's so, the way you approach this is, I mean, super enlightening and brave. I mean, you wrote about some things that I think many people wouldn't want to bear for the very reasons that Olivia is writing about there. There's a shame and and a really raw 
loss and you are in kind of a tailspin and you tell us what that's like and you do some things that, you know, in maybe other times you wouldn't have done, but that's where you're at. I think that's pretty courageous. (laughs) When, When you began to put this all down on paper, what was the decision about just how candid you were going to be about what this was like and some of the decisions you were making? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I didn't have a huge conflict about the disclosure, even though this book is so much more personal than my other books. I grew up in a family where my mother was a psychotherapist. <laughs> ah. <And> I, in some ways, you know, maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with disclosure than other people. But I, you know, I won't deny, look, it is, it is, it is exposing. I do feel, you know, somewhat vulnerable about it. But I just feel like maybe it's my age too. I'm just like, you know what? Damn it. I'm, I'm, I want to talk about this. And I think. <laughs> I think that this is good for us. It's good for me. And, you know, let's have some conversations and, you know, let's help each other out. Florence Williams is talking about it on the show, on our book show. And her new book is titled Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. It's a memoir that combines her experience with leaving a long marriage and what she learned about scientifically, what was happening in her brain and body. Florence, I want to talk about your experience with Steve Cole. He runs the UCLA Social Genomics Core Laboratory. And you persuade him, I guess, to do an analysis of your blood because you want to know what about that? Yes. So as I investigated the health effects of heartbreak and loneliness, it wasn't long before I was led to the work of, of Dr. Cole, Stephen Cole. And what he has done is, on, on a pretty large scale, examined the blood work of people who are lonely <laughs> and has compared it to people who aren't lonely. Because we know from the science and we know from sort of the medical research that people who are lonely do face a significantly higher risk of a number of diseases and early death. So especially diseases related to inflammation, you know, Alzheimer's, um, heart disease, uh, some cancers. So being 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 lonely and being heartbroken for a long time um, can have really devastating consequences for our health. I was experiencing some pretty dramatic health effects uh, after the split, and here was a man who could actually and analyze our blood samples and say, oh, I see you have these genetic markers of loneliness. <laughs> and these are not these are not yeah. genes that we're born with, right? I mean, these are actually the way our genes get expressed when we're, you know, our genes are supposed to be very responsive to our environments. So um, there we have some leukocytes, which are white blood cells. And the way he describes them is they listen for loneliness. They are actually mm-hmm. listening to our social state. And I just I thought that was fascinating. You know, why would it a gene, why, yeah, why would your white blood cells care, you know, if, if you've been dumped, right, by someone you love? But they do. And it's because they're gearing up for threat, actually. And this probably goes way back to our evolutionary time when when to be rejected and sort of kicked out of your kin group did, did in fact, literally mean you'd be more likely to be attacked by a predator. Um, because you would not have that safety in numbers. And so our, our, this is sort of a, it's sort of a long explanation, but our immune systems actually switch up the, the cells that they upregulate and downregulate in order to prepare for a blood wound, <laughs> a bacterial it's infection. incredible. Yeah. And they, but, but the terrible thing is they downregulate for viral infections because viruses are spread in groups. And mm. so this is exactly the mm. wrong response that you want in a pandemic. It's the wrong response if you're someone who has HIV, which is what Steve Cole started out studying for many years. And he found that that gay men with HIV who were still in the closet uh, and therefore sort of lonely with their diagnoses were more likely to get AIDS, to progress to AIDS more quickly and more likely to die sooner. And so eventually he started looking at the genetic markers. And, I, and so actually it was his idea. He said, why don't you come to the lab and we'll take a look at your blood and then we'll look at it again, you know, in six months. And then we'll look at it again in a year. And we'll see if, you know, we'll see what your blood, how your blood is responding to your social state. Yeah, I, I just, I want to read a, a couple sentences here from this part of the book. Because I just, I found this really intriguing. 
Cole zeroes in on a block of about 200 genes that make up what he calls an organized conspiracy in the immune system, joining forces to launch an uptick in inflammation, and as you noted, a downtick in our ability to fight viruses. Up goes the production of molecules like C-reactive protein, interleukin-6. Down goes the production of antibodies and protective proteins like type 1 interferon. So you knew, you, you knew, I guess, in some ways, that you were more vulnerable to some things and you were more prepared against others. And that's the effect that this loss and loneliness was having on, on your body and on your immune system. So interesting. It, it was really interesting. And I, after talking to him, I understood the urgency to recover from heartbreak. It's not something that you want to wallow in for a super long time because it has real consequences on your health. And I, and I think this is something that's really underappreciated. You know, we, we think of heartbreak as being an emotional state. We think of it as all in our heads. And it is partly in our heads, but it turns out it's in our bodies as well. And it can make us sick. Writer and journalist Florence Williams talking about her book, Heartbreak, which investigates uh, what science can tell us about deep personal pain. Something uplifting here, Steph Curtis, for the second day of the spring memory drive. But hey, it is great science. It's really interesting storytelling. I just find myself gravitating more and more to these books that make science accessible, anecdotal, and yet I can delve in really deep mm-hmm. to understanding the science itself. And it, it's great. Al- personally illuminating. And already, right. like I was listening to this, and I have, I'm close to somebody who's going through a heartbreak right now. Oh. It is so hard. And I was just thinking, this will be great. I'm going to yeah. share Good. this title and talk about it. And it helps me, gives me an insight into what they're going through. It's right. so hard. Heartbreak is hard, people. You know what's not hard? Becoming a member of Minnesota Public Radio. <laughs> what it's our member drive. Here's the, trans- here's the transition. <laughs> it's our member drive, and we're hoping that you will support NPR News and the incredible conversations, illuminating conversations, life-changing conversations that you hear that we bring to you every weekday, every weekend. You turn on the radio and you're enlightened and informed and people just like you have become members before. Now we want you to contribute to go to mprnews.org or give us a call 1-800- Two two seven twenty eight eleven. Steph, you're going to be happy to hear this. Jessica in Duluth is back to sustainer sustainer status. Fantastic. A little hard to say. <laughs> Why? Because nothing is more important than our son knowing that we are part of the only stations we listen to. What's sustaining all about? It's really you making a commitment to Minnesota Public Radio with a contribution until you tell us to stop. That's it. It's yep. as simple as that. You won't get a million emails from us. You're not going to get phone calls. We're not showing up on your door. You are a sustainer, and we are grateful for that. You decide what sustaining looks like for you. Maybe it's 10 bucks a month. Maybe you come in at 25 Maybe you, you hang out at the leadership level. Maybe you want that state parks permit, which is – I am so ready for spring and so excited (laughs) about getting into all these state parks around here. So I hope you're excited, too. 800-227-2811, mprnews.org. And today is Pay It Forward Friday. Every donation today will not only support this service, but also will help refugee children through our partnership with Alight. So support our spring member drive today, and you'll help families displaced by war. Every donation, your gift will provide a kid's play kit to a child displaced by war, famine, or natural disasters. So thank you to Alight. Thank you to everyone who's donated so far today. And I'd love it if you would join them. If you want to make your donation go as far as possible, how about joining today and making making sure that a kid out there who is in crisis gets a play kit. Thank you to Alight, 1-800-227-2811, or go to mprnews.org. Brennan, you sound like someone who loves science coverage and is really interested in the details of that because, as you made your contribution, you said... NPR has kept me constant company, especially over the last two years of the pandemic. Coverage has kept me informed about everything going on, including some of the world's most important recent events. 
If you love books, you're a big reader, you are interested in science, this is the hour for you. Step up and make a contribution. NPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. Steph, I'm going to I'm going to say what I often say during drives. It's not about the thank you gifts. It's really about the 24-hour day in, day mm-hmm. out uh, quality of news coverage. But okay, the thank you gifts are kind of cool. So along <laughs> with the parks permit, what else? Is, you've got the pay it forward deal you've that got we've the got going pay today, it forward which is deal. really great. Yep. Or you can join at the $100 a month level and become a member of the Carrie Miller Book Rock Club. on, yep. girl. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll send you out books a couple times a year. And then um, I can't believe that we'll be able to get together at some I know. point. But those Someday. get-togethers with the Carrie Miller Book Club, Burke Circle, are fantastic. You just talk about reading with people. So join at the $100 a month level, and you could become a member. All right. Uh, but the important thing is that you join right now, mprnews.org, or call one 800 227 11 support this service and of course it's pay it forward friday so with your donation a child out there will will get a play kit from a light hey if you're listening over lunch i really want you to stick around for this next conversation coming up about grief and science but before we get there i mean don't try not to miss this this is really great but before we get there i'm going to remind you again that your contributions and your commitment make a difference to npr news so do you nprnews.org 800-227-2811. Okay, Steph, I just can't wait to get... And this is the interview I was telling you about off air. Yes, I'm listening. You're going to buy the book, too. Uh, Big Book's Bold Ideas Discussion with Mary Frances O'Connor, who studies grief and loss at the University of Arizona. Her insights and her science has really kind of reshaped the way I think about losing someone that I love. The new book is called The Grieving Brain, and it examines what brain scans tell us about the journey of grief and loss. And we started our conversation by talking about how our brains create a map of those we love. Because our loved ones are so important to us, the brain devotes a lot of space to keeping track of where they are. So if I say to you, how would you find your partner right now? You can probably tell me where they are or when you'll see them next. And all of that is encoded by the brain. So by knowing how to predict what our loved ones are doing and our sense of closeness to them, there is a way the brain actually tracks where they are. The other example is sometimes you'll say, oh gosh, I wish I could picture you in your new apartment if someone, a good friend has moved. And that's because your brain really wants to understand where someone is that is very important to us. And so even if we haven't seen that person for a long time, a child who maybe has gone away to college or has moved overseas, the brain still has this ability to say, well, this is this is in general where they are and and continues to kind of keep track of that. Is that how, is that right? That's how I kind of understood your description. Yes, that's right. Because it's so important when we bond with our one and only, whether that's a spouse or a child or even a best friend, the brain then takes on the effort to try and understand where they are where in the world and when we will see them again. And so one of the very challenging things about death is that it isn't that we can't find them. It isn't that there isn't that they are, you know, far away or we won't see them for a long time. It's that there is no map. And that is a very hard thing for the brain to understand. So I want to know how scientists like you and your colleagues figured this out. What were the experiments that were really important to understanding this? There are a variety of aspects of neuroscience that have been used to discover this uh, way of mapping our loved ones. One of the ways that we know is that the brain is very good at tracking locations. And so if you think about even an animal, they are tracking where they should go to forage for food. 
If you think about it, once we became social mammals, then tracking our pups and our partner, uh, the animals doing those trackings became very important as well. And so, for example, Zoe Donaldson at the University of Colorado Boulder has discovered that there are specific neurons that fire when we're approaching the loved one. They fire only for that. And as the bond grows, as the bond grows stronger, there are more and more neurons devoted specifically to firing when approaching uh, the, the mate. So it's examples like that that help us to sort of piece together, along with some human neuroimaging studies, the importance of humans, uh, to humans of our loved ones and how to keep track of them. I'm going to come back to the neuroimaging because that was really interesting um, how you describe what you see and how you set up these experiments. But I want to come back to this idea that even, let's say logically, I experienced my father's death. I went to his funeral. Intellectually, I know that he's gone. And yet it sounds like my brain is slower to catch up on that realization, that that's part of what grief is, that my brain keeps trying to situate my dad somewhere, and slowly, slowly, that kind of fades away. Do I have that? That is right. And it's why I think of grieving as a learning process. But you know, we learn things all the time. So on some level, it seems really odd that it takes so long to really learn that they're gone, that you don't just pick up your phone to text them and then remember that you can't do that anymore. And I think it's because the brain has the capacity to really maintain two streams of information at the same time. So just as you described, on the one hand, we have the memory of maybe watching the person decline physically. We may have the memory of getting the phone call, knowing that they died or even going to the memorial or funeral, we have memories of, you know, standing around in our black clothing with our friends and family. And, and those memories make it real. It means that we know that they have died on one level. But because at the same time, when we have an attachment bond, part of that is the belief that they are out there for us, that if they are not here, that what we should do is go find them, then those two pieces of information, the memories on the one hand and the belief on the other, it takes a long time for the brain to reconcile those and really be able to predict that we're not going to see them on this earthly plane again. Yeah, it, it explains a lot. L let's say, Mary Frances, that I was in your lab with you, standing next to you, as you were you know, seeing some of the results of the neuroimaging experiments. In mm. layman's language, can you tell me what I'd see? Mm. So when we ask bereaved people to come into the lab, we ask them also to bring some photographs, some photographs of the person who's died. And in some studies, photographs of what we call the living loved one, you know, another person who they're very close to who's still alive. And we have pictures of strangers, something, someone they would not have known. And on the, when they're in the imaging, neuroimaging scanner, uh, we are able to project those photos of the loved one, uh, of the stranger. And so in that sort of sterile hospital-like environment, by looking at these photos, they are really often overcome with grief. And at the same time, we're able to see the firing patterns in their brain while they are experiencing that, giving us a very quantitative and concrete way to measure something as ephemeral as grief. Has this neuroimaging given you greater understanding that grief may exist in, in a brain chemistry kind of way, in a neuroscientific kind of way, and how that links up with the experience of it in the body. I guess I want to know more about the mind-body connection of this and how well you understand that. 
Mm. You know, the thing that I think neuroimaging has given us that we didn't have before in understanding grief was it really forced scientists to think about it in terms of what is really lost when we lose a loved one? What is mm -hmm. it? And so that really led us down the path of understanding. We have to understand what the bond is like in the brain. How does the brain encode the fact that this person is our one and only and not that other person? And what we discovered was that bond is very much encoded in the reward neurobiology of the brain. And so we began to see results that suggested that grief was related to reward neurobiology, which seemed strange at first. But as soon as you think about the idea that the brain is trying to predict when we will next see this person, which is a very rewarding experience, mm -hmm. which all, you know, the dopamine and oxytocin is trying to motivate us to seek out that loved one again, then maybe it makes a little more sense that we have to develop a new prediction that we're not going to see them again. And some of what we see in grief is then related to this reward neurobiology. But of course, as you say, that dopamine and oxytocin affects the rest of the body as well. It isn't only present in the brain. Yeah. I mean, as I was reading your book, I was also reading a book about heartbreak and all of the mm -hmm. physical manifestations. Um, Florence Williams' new book, uh, and yes. all the physical manifestations that the body goes through when the heart, uh, you know, and the brain have experienced uh, the loss, not through death, but through the end of a relationship. And what was really extraordinary about that is how connected so many other parts of our physical systems are to this experience of heartbreak. And it made me wonder whether you are learning that your circulatory system, your digestive system, you know, so many other parts of the body are going to be afflicted by this experience of grief. What do you know about it? Not only is our physical body uh, really changed when we lose this regulator in our life, right? When we lose this other person that helps us to regulate our sleep and our eating patterns, but also things like our heart rate. It is also the fact that we can see that in the brain as well. So not many neuroimagers use peripheral physiology or uh, measures from the body at the same time as they measure reactions in the brain. But I have a couple of studies that look at cardiovascular reactivity and also inflammation from the immune system in the body. And what's interesting is we see an association between increased inflammation, say after the death of a loved one, mm -hmm. and particular activation in emotion regulation parts of the brain. So it's interesting to think about the fact that the brain is reacting to this external event, but your brain is also reacting to the internal stress experience that you're having when you lose a loved one. And the brain sort of sits as this command center that is integrating the information from both the outside world and the inside world. This makes so much sense, Steph, it when does. you experience it, feel it, and think, why can't I fill in the blank? And then you know your brain is kind of working against you mm -hmm. because your brain is in this one pattern and you're trying to recover on this other level. It makes a lot of sense. Great science conversations here. If you love science and you're a big reader and you love books and you listen on Fridays, yeah, we'd love to have you step up and make a contribution. Can you do that now? MPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. How about Pay It Forward Friday, Steph? What's oh, it all about? I am so excited about this. Pay It Forward Friday means that every donation today 
will help refugee children through our partnership with Alight. Support the Spring Member Drive today. Your donation goes to uh, support NPR News, but also your gift will provide a kid's play kit to a child who's displaced by war, famine, or natural disasters. Uh, our our audience is a thoughtful one, one who's uh, interested in the community, interested in the greater good, interested in the world. So this is a perfect pay-it-forward idea for our audience. I'm hoping that you are listening right now and thinking, yes, now's the time. I've been thinking about becoming a member and knowing that uh, my donation also means an art kit for a child out there who's displaced by war or natural disasters. Uh, it, it's it's a great combination. mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Here's Therese from St. Paul who says, I give because a day without NPR is like a day without coffee. Now, I'm not a <laughs> coffee drinker, but you are. Right? I oh. am. Tea and coffee, right? Tea and coffee. Yeah. Hot drinks, yes. We get what you're talking about. It's stimulating. It's entertaining. It's thought-provoking. It's engaging. It's enlightening. What more could you ask for of a news and information service (laughs) and the music? We know a lot of people listen to The Current and Classical. If you listen all day, good moment to say, okay, what is that worth? Uh, You know, I'm dipping in in the mornings. I'm checking in. In the in the middays, I'm back for all things considered. I'm listening to the BBC at night. Gee, you're a pretty engaged, involved listener. That might be worth, I don't know, $15 a month. That gets you the state parks permit, mm-hmm. which is a really cool thank you gift. You decide that's the beauty of this. It's somewhat the honor system where you decide for yourself, uh, this is what fits for me, and this is what I can afford, and this is how I want to be involved with NPR. NPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. Think about what you gain from NPR News, the news of the day, context and analysis, compelling conversations, illuminating conversations like the one we were just listening to about how grief affects our brains. Think about the shows you rely on Morning Edition, this show, NPR News with Carrie Miller and All Things Considered or Marketplace, and support it right now and support your community because that's what you're doing by donating right now. You're making this station, this news service available to people across the state to keep people informed. 1-800-227-2811 or go to mprnews.org. I think the mark of a great interview is where you don't really know know what the next question is going to be. Or you're sitting there thinking, I wish they'd ask about this. And then that question gets asked. And the answer is much more revealing or interesting than you thought it would be. The marks of a good interview, we have the time, the luxury of time to uh, to bring you that kind of interrogation and that kind of news coverage. Please support that with a contribution. 800 227 2811 online at mprnews.org. Remember, it is Pay It Forward Friday, so if you donate, if you donate right now, a child out there will get a kids' play kit from a light. mprnews.org or 1-800-227-2811. It's Friday of the Spring Member Drive. It's maybe you'd like to just check this off on your list before we get to the weekend. Get it done. mprnews.org, 800-227- 2811 and know that we are grateful for your contributions and your support.